you know, I want to show that you can build purpose and mission into every kind of business. And uh, I'm a big believer that that's how we're going to change the world is by changing capitalism, by changing the way that we think about operating and leading businesses. This is The Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer brand and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Welcome back, everybody. It is September 2021, and we are back from a long summer break, and we haven't done one of these in a while. And I really wanted to explore the um, social entrepreneur some more. You know, there's a lot of uh, mindfulness in consumerism that we've talked about here and in prior white papers at Traub. And I think it's really cool to kick off the season with one of the great uh, minds in that space. And so Davis Smith uh, grew up throughout Latin America and has uh, since dedicated his life to helping those in need there and around the world. And he's a passionate social entrepreneur and adventurer. Davis is currently the founder and CEO of Codopaxi, which is a brand that you many of you may, may know. It's an outdoor gear and active lifestyle brand with a social mission at its core. And the brand creates, you know, innovative products and experiences that fund sustainable poverty alleviation around the world. And it's the first company to incorporate from inception uh, as a benefit corporation and raises uh, and raise venture capital thereafter. So it's a uh, kind of interesting that um, someone who has, you know, the social mission at its core from inception was able to raise uh, capital. And not only that, most recently bring in a, a world famous uh, firm, to come in uh, to its to its capital. So, um, without further ado, stick around. Davis Smith is fantastic. Davis, thank you so much for joining me on the safari today. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you inviting me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I am um, really excited that after 55, this will be probably whatever, in the mid-50s episode, we have not done one on active outdoor lifestyle, if you can believe it. And my partner was the former CEO of the North Face. And he was so excited that, you know, we are talking to you. And uh, I'm absolutely delighted that that we can be here with you today. And where are you right now? I'm in Salt Lake City, uh, up in the mountains of Salt Lake City, and uh, actually doing this from my home office, which is uh, kind of a new thing for me over the last 18 months, like it probably is for a lot of people. Well, look, I, I'm I'm so delighted. You know, your brand is one that we have followed and, and known of for quite some time, and we were introduced by a mutual friend. And you know, what, what I think is so spectacular about what you've been able to do is take a category that you know some might say um, is relatively uh, overdone. There's many many brands that do what you do, but you managed to imbue it with not only a very distinctive look and feel 
it's not about just the, the wonderful logo, but literally the product and the colors and the color schemes and the way they hang together, uh, but also the fact that right underneath it, the company has a soul and you're, you're really giving back in a huge way to the, to the wonderful people that you uh, probably grew up with in your travels as a young guy around South America when you even growing up, I think. And, and th- this notion of, of, of content, community, and, and consumer products and that sort of mashing of the two together with a great story and a great product, as you can hear, it, it gets me kind of jazzed. And so I'd love to hear how you got into this business, how um, you kind of managed to uh, I'm sure, like everyone says, you, you're an overnight sensation in in in, in years, uh, ten years. But anyway, um, g- give us the story. How did you start, and uh, and how are we getting here? Yeah, no, this is fun, and I'm so glad uh, that we'll have a chance to talk about some of these things that I'm really passionate about: the outdoors, uh, social impact, uh, and it really kind of starts uh, with my childhood. I, as you as you pointed out. Uh, I actually left the United States with my family when I was four years old and we moved to Latin America. Um, you know, my childhood and, and teen years were really an adventure. Uh, my dad was an adventurer. You know, we'd hang out of the jungle every day near my house. My brother and I would, you know, my, my dad would take us, take us climbing into active volcanoes in the Andes. We made our own raft and floated the Amazon River fishing for piranha. We'd go survive on uninhabited islands and, and spear fish and, and eat coconuts to survive. Uh, I thought this was normal behavior. Uh, so, uh, but when we weren't adventuring, um, we were serving. And it was something my passion, my parents were very passionate about. And I didn't come from money. My parents, you know, we didn't have a lot of money in our home, but um, we spent time visiting orphanages and shelters and uh, in slums. And this was, uh, a really impactful thing as a young as a young child, uh, you know, as a four year old, I was I was seeing children completely naked on the sides of the yep. street or slums, yep. and it was, you know, at that young age, trying to understand why your life is so different and uh, was hard trying to reconcile that. So it, it certainly had a, a huge impact on the way that I saw the world and and frankly what I wanted to do with my life. And for those who have not been following uh, Cotopaxi and, and those people are living under a rock, I think, but nonetheless, if, if, for those who don't know of Cotopaxi, describe a little bit the, the products, the, 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 the focus of the brand, please. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the brand is an outdoor brand. We're, we're a brand that makes, manufactures backpacks, uh, jackets, outerwear, activewear, uh, tents and sleeping bags. Um, you know, we're kind of in this category with, uh, you know, the North Face and, and Patagonia and Columbia uh, and all these other, you know, iconic outdoor brands that have been around for really decades, uh, you know, 50 plus years. And uh, so we're kind of a, an emerging brand in that space, a brand that really kind of targets this really a younger consumer, a millennial and a Gen Z consumer. The product, like as you pointed out, is very recognizable, very colorful which kind of ties back to these roots that I have in Latin America um, where there's just so much color and, and just everything is alive and there's music. And, uh, you know, I wanted to bring some of that spirit into the, into the brand. And, and so interestingly, you know, we have this, um, this love affair here with both uh, obviously brands uh, at, at Traub, 
but also with the enthusiast category. Many of my colleagues here have been um, involved with businesses, you know, marathon businesses and, you know, car enthusiast businesses. Um, and obviously, you know, as I just mentioned, um, outdoor enthusiasts as well. And we often say that if you have an incredible brand, as well as a very enthusiastic consumer about that activity who happens to also love your brand, then the famous sort of financial statistics that everyone loves to throw around today in the investment world of you know, LTV to CAC actually become a reality because your LTV is, is made longer by the enthusiast consumer uh, and your CAC is reduced because everyone's doing word of mouth. Everyone's, everyone's talking about you to their friends and their peers who are also enthusiasts. So it's sort of this wonderful nirvana type place to be. Am I exaggerating or do you feel some of that? No, this is, this is 100% true. Uh, and actually, I think the learning that I had on this was actually when I was in business school, my first week or maybe second week of business school, I met up with some, some classmates that were wanting to start a, an e-commerce business selling eyewear glasses. <laughs> and, uh, they were, you know, this is in 2009. And I had, I had built a first, I going into business school, I just, uh, I had built a successful e-commerce business called pooltables.com. Very random business, you know, small business, never raised venture capital, but, you know, we were profitable. We became the largest retailer of, of pool tables in the country, you know, very small industry. So not that impressive, but I had some experience behind me. These, these classmates of mine were telling me about this vision they had for building this brand. Uh, and they called it Warby Parker. And uh, I think we're both wearing a pair maybe right now, but <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I think we both are. So. Uh, you know, but they kind of explained to me this vision they had for building this business. And I was really excited about it. But then I went and Google, I brought up my computer right there and I Googled, you know, glasses or eyewear on Google. And there were like dozens of other websites already selling glasses and for like 50 bucks. And they were saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to price it just under a hundred. And I was like, you know, guys, I'm so excited for you. But at the same time, like, I hate to break it to you, but people are already doing this in a big way. Like, I don't understand how you're going to compete. You know, you don't, even the name, I don't, I don't remember it. Like it's kind of a unique, different name and you don't have like glasses.com or some great domain. And they're like, no, Davis, you don't understand. We're going to go build a brand. And yeah. I was like, mm -hmm. well, if it's not easy. Like if it would, everyone would just go do that. If you could charge a little bit more and have more customer loyalty and all these things. And, but I watched them do it. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I was lucky enough that I actually put a small check into the, in their angel in their you know seed round, um, and uh, you know I loved watching them grow that business, and I learned so much watching how they built a, a brand, and they built they actually had some mission and purpose built into the business as well. It's a little yep. more on the periphery, yep. but uh, I learned a lot from watching that, and that's where I really started recognizing the value in brand and the way that they connected with uh, and created this tribe of like really fiercely loyal customers. Absolutely. I mean, we, we wrote in 2017 a, a white paper, uh, sort of a, uh, yeah, I guess that's what it was, a white paper about what we call the pagan consumer, about the, the, the importance of uh, mindfulness in, and maybe spirituality even in consumerism today. And in fact, it was interesting, we had another brand that is very different to yours, but also had Central American, well, yours was South American, but this was Central American American Roots, which was Pura Vida, the bracelets. Uh, and they sold their business recently, but they were 
basically imbuing each of those products, not only with obviously beautiful product, the power of great product, uh, even though it's a bracelet, but it was manufactured by these local um, native tribes from the various parts of Central America. And it imbued those products with a sort of a spiritual aura because they came from these really authentic, beautiful places. And those entrepreneurs were bringing them um, effectively uh, you know, in, in, into the consumer's lives. And I think this idea of having spirituality in, in the products that are created, this notion of you, you can do good through consumerism, this idea that consumerism is this plague. Uh, actually, no, you can actually vote with your wallet um, and follow the companies that, that, that do well. And I think, you know, case in point, your foundation, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that, your foundation, which I, I'll let you sort of give the, the headlines on it, but what a, what a moving thing for you to have created and be able to continue. And, and I'm, I'm assuming now it's going to just go from, from, from sort of uh, step to step now, uh, uh, you know, leap, leapfrogging uh, all your expectations in your early on uh, years. Um, but your foundation is, I think, a pillar to what you do. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, so when I when I started the business, uh, the first thing I did when I had the idea was I called an attorney uh, of mine that had helped me establish and help do the rounds for a previous business. And I told him, hey, uh, you know, I'm really interested in building a new business, but that's focused on doing good. And I'd like to incorporate as a benefit corporation. How experienced are you with this? He's like, yeah, we've, I've actually helped a number of businesses that he'd been involved with uh, convert to benefit corporations. And he's like, yeah, you can do that. He's like, but I wouldn't do it from inception. He's like, why don't you convert to a benefit corporation after a few years when you've proven that you can build a, a business that's successful? And he's like, no one's going to want to invest. VCs are not going to want to invest in a business that's committed to giving away money before you've ever made money. So don't get that backwards. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's really good advice, but I, I didn't take it. You know, I, <laughs> I had really, a feeling. Yeah. I, I just felt, you know, so strongly about why this business and brand needed to exist. And it, we didn't exist. We weren't going to exist to sell backpacks. The world didn't need another backpack company or another jacket company. What it needed was businesses with souls and that that care deeply about people and missions and purpose. And so we incorporated as a benefit corporation and uh, we did raise, you know, we, we found investors that believed in us and it wasn't easy. You know, I think we probably got rejected more than we maybe would have otherwise. And um, but that purpose and mission was built into the business. And the foundation was something we established a few years later when we recognized that we had so many customers and even other businesses that would come and say, hey, we want to buy a bunch of your jackets or your bags for our company because we really align with the mission. Uh, and by the way, could we make a small donation to you guys to help with your work in fighting poverty? There was no way that we could take those donations. We weren't a nonprofit. You know, we, we couldn't take customers' donations and said, hey, can I donate an extra $5 in my purchase? We really didn't have a mechanism for yeah. that. The foundation allowed us to do that. It's, it was like, hey, you know, we now have this this nonprofit under the umbrella of our benefit corporation that allows us to to take donations from others, and we cover all the overhead of the team that does that. And a hundred percent of those donations from the foundation go towards fighting poverty. And uh, last year, we we directly assisted eight hundred and twenty two thousand people living in poverty through this foundation. This year, we're going to surpass the million number. So. It's, it's the thing I'm most proud of. It's what I wake up in the morning thinking about is this mission and this purpose of fighting poverty. Yeah. And, and so, you know, speaking of, of mission and purpose, 
um, from a consumer perspective is one thing, but maybe talk about how that helps all of your colleagues wake up every morning and charge into work every day. Because I'm sure from an HR perspective, it, 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 it enlivens their spirits too. Absolutely. Um, you know, this is an interesting thing. Uh, Neil Blumenthal from Warby Parker mentioned this to me. He said, one of the greatest outcomes from their having purpose built into their business was the ability to attract and retain talent. And I, I've certainly seen that to be true with us. You know, I've built uh, two different businesses before this. I've done a lot of hiring over the years uh, and worked really hard to retain great teams. Uh, it has been very different with Cotopaxi. Uh, we have as many as a thousand applicants per job opening. I've never experienced that before. And it's not because we pay better than market. We pay at, at market rates. Like uh, people, everyone on our team could probably go make more money if they went and hunted for a job somewhere else. Uh, we, we try to pay fairly, uh, but people are working with us because they believe in our purpose. It's not a job. It's not a career move. It's a calling for us. And that's and you see that in the way that the team interacts and our ability to retain talent has been something that's been really unique. We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage, and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. And this might be slightly off reservation for what we're supposed to be talking about, but I was just with uh, one of my colleagues, we were talking about, you know, this, um, uh, it's not called the the great retirement, the the great the great recession or the great uh, res- resignation. The great resignation. Thank you. We, we'll, yeah. And the great resignation of, of many young people, and it's a serious thing, saying to themselves, look, I would rather choose living in, you know, not an, a 10, person, 10 million person city and moving to a smaller city closer to mountains with hiking trails and biking trails and, and rapids and, and um, you know, and it could be that thing they want to do. Maybe they want to go and hit you know, two buckets of balls every morning and every night, right? And um, and so this idea that people are prioritizing their well-being, their spirituality over, frankly, and it's hard for many people to believe this, a paycheck, right? Um, it may not be the highest paycheck, but it'll be the highest fulfillment. Um, it's it's kind of crazy. And so really, actually, when you think about it, it's really not crazy. It's actually uh, kind of makes you feel good for the, for the future of our country, hopefully. Um, but do you think that will tr- port to businesses across all parts of our industry? Is it possible to imbue your kind of a mission into pick any widget business? I mean, how, how, how do you think that can port into other businesses? Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, uh, you know, we've actually probably been a beneficiary from this, this, uh, this, this shift that people are making. Uh, you know, as we have a business that's very purpose-driven, you know, we're in a place that's surrounded by the outdoors and five or 10 minutes, I can be on, you know, I can be on up in the mountains, a minute from my house, 30 seconds, I can be on a trail. It's just a, it's a, you know, it's been a nice change. And during the recession, or sorry, during the pandemic, it's been 
really interesting to see, you know, Utah has actually had the lowest unemployment rate in the country, uh, around two and a half percent. So I think we've seen a lot of people looking to, to make the shift to your point. Uh, and, you know, your question around, you know, can every business figure out a way to do this? I believe the answer is yes. Uh, and, you know, interestingly, I talked about that first business that I built right out of undergrad, the pooltables.com business, very random kind of weird business. Mm-hmm. You know, I sold it over a decade ago. Um, the person I sold it to reached out to me early this year. I still had a small amount of equity in the business. He reached out and said, hey, I've got a buyer for the business. I'm looking to retire and uh, I'm going to be selling the business. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, at first, I was excited. Uh, the more I thought about it over that day, I thought, you know what? I want to buy this business back. And uh, I did. I ended up buying the business back a few weeks ago. I bought it back and I've converted it to a benefit corporation. And uh, we are going to go build mission and purpose and fighting poverty and sustainability into this brand in an industry that is not thinking about this. This is not on anyone in that industry's radar. And what I want to do is I want to prove that no matter what industry you're in, no matter how big your or big or small your business is, uh, you can find or how old it is. You know that business is now almost 20 years old. You know I want to show that you can build purpose and mission into every kind of business. And uh, I'm a big believer that. That's how we're going to change the world is by changing capitalism, by changing the way that we think about operating and leading businesses. I, I agree with you. And that's a, that's a pull quote right there. I, I love what you just said. And uh, I think it's, it's incredibly inspirational. How old is your business, the current one, uh, Cotopaxi? Yeah, Cotopaxi is seven years old. We started in 2014. 2014. And so when you... How did you wake up one morning and say, I'm, I'm obviously, I know that, you know, adventure was in your soul um, and in your blood. Uh, that's probably 80% of it. But, but how did you go about, what were the first products? I mean, a lot of people who listen to this, I love the, the founder story, but how did you just jump into this category? Yeah. So I, it was, it was a category that I kind of had my eye on for a while, just being someone that loves the outdoors. Uh, I also recognize it was very saturated, but um, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting experience that I had and how I kind of came here, which was, um, I was laying in bed one night in Brazil and I set a new year's resolution earlier that year that I was, I was going to change somebody's life. That's what I wanted to do that year. And my wife always makes fun of my goals because they're not smart. You know, the, uh, I don't even remember what the acronym stands for, like specific, measurable, attainable. I don't remember exactly, but I, like my goals sometimes could be <laughs> could be a little better, but this is what I had in my mind. And uh, I had a little post-it note on my mirror. And, you know, I was brushing my teeth at night, and I'm just thinking about this. And thinking, you know what? I I am. I was feeling discouraged. Um, you know, I my whole life I'd known I wanted to have purpose uh, in giving back, and that's why I chose to be an entrepreneur in the first place. I'd been uh, a philanthropist mentor of mine who had been a successful entrepreneur told me if I wanted to make a difference. I could, I should be an entrepreneur. I'd be able to figure that a way to do that. And I was feeling discouraged. And uh, I went to bed that night and my mind was racing around this idea of giving back. And um, I ended up getting out of my bed, going on the couch and just uh, started writing down this, this flow of ideas that was coming to me. And I ended up staying on the couch that night, all night, the entire next day and the entire following night. And, uh, and over that 36 or 40 hour period, I had this the concept for this building this business this brand in in the outdoor space that would that would make a difference and so that's really how I kind of landed on the space and I, I a few things that mattered was it was a big 
big market. Yep. I, th- I felt that was important to go to, to sustainably and scalably fight poverty. I needed to choose a category that could scale that I could build a billion dollar business in. Otherwise I, I wouldn't be able to have the scalable impact that I wanted to have. And so, and then it was a, a space that I was really passionate about. And while I didn't, you know, the pool table business, I wasn't really into pool or billiards. But I don't think you need to have that passion necessarily to build a good business, but I think it helps. And uh, that was something that, that mattered to me. Tell me a little bit about how you decided to, you know, where we are today. I mean, today um, you've got a, you built a brand and to, to build a brand in seven years uh, from a running start, I think is a remarkable feat. Um, but you have presumably a pretty heavy direct consumer bent, um, but also presumably like Neil Blumenthal and all the, the crew, um, even Everlane and others, they've realized that maybe um, the other customer acquisition cost is uh, rent. Uh, you know, we, we don't have to just send dollars to Sergey Brin and Mark Zuckerberg. We can also maybe uh, open stores as a, as a way of attracting customers and telling our story. So w- what are the channels of distribution that you're using today? And well, maybe it's just just one. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. You know, when we started, we were direct consumer only and uh, online. And over time, uh, as the business has matured, we've truly built an omnichannel brand and business. Uh, the, our biggest channel is still e-commerce, but that's that's going to be changing in the in the very near future. Uh, you know, we, we are selling through our own retail stores. We have uh, five retail stores of our own in, in Colorado, in Washington State, and in Utah. Uh, with a with a new store opening in San Francisco here shortly, uh, and uh, a seventh store open, another one opening in Colorado, and now we have uh, a plan to open, you know, maybe forty retail stores over the next few years. And so retail is definitely part of our our long term strategy. But I think maybe maybe potentially even more interesting than that is is this idea of building a brand through partnerships with wholesaler, with retailer, other retailers, and so. You know, REI, for example, and uh, we have about 800 other retailers that sell our product, a lot of really, uh, you know, niche outdoor retailers. And so I think that as we thought about wholesale, we had to be very disciplined. You know, I think of the wholesale channel as, as, a, as a pyramid. And at the very top of the pyramid in the outdoor industry, you might have these specialty outdoor shops. You go to like Vail, Colorado or Park City, yeah. Utah, or your local, you know, yeah, outdoor Where all the shop. purest enthusiasts are, yeah. Exactly. And you want your product in there where those people are discovering the product. If you're Van Shoes, it's like the, it, you know, it's the Huntington Beach, you know, surf or skate shop, you know, up at that very top. And then for us, as you kind of move down that pyramid, you have REI and these other, out, you know, maybe larger format outdoor retailers. Uh, and then in the middle, and those are those very that top of the pyramid is these brand accretive retailers. In the yep. middle, you have these brand neutral, um, you know, retailers. And for us, that you know, that might be a, you know a retailer that uh, isn't necessarily an outdoor brand, but an outdoor retailer. But it's a place that that it kind of gives us a lot of exposure. Yep. Uh, and then at the very bottom might be you know, frankly, it might be a Macy's or a J.C. Penney that's kind of more mass. It's not necessarily our customer. Those brand dilutive retailers, ones we avoid at all costs, at least in the first few decades of the business. Vans actually has their product in all those, all yep. the way down to the JC. Over time. Yep. Yeah, over time. But in the very beginning, you have to stay very disciplined. So we said no to a lot of amazing retailers as we've tried to stay very focused on that. That's hard to do that, right? You have to show some serious discipline. Yes, absolutely. But I think between you know these different channels, we've been able to build a better business. And we found, you know, 
75% of our e-commerce revenue comes from unpaid channels. It's mm-hmm. we're not just driving uh, you know, sales by performance marketing. It's people organically or directly going to us because they've heard about us from word of mouth or they discovered us at an REI store. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we did a, a series of studies over a five-year period um, called the New Davids, David and Goliath. And it, it was um, profiling all the Davids, right? And I think you're on there. In fact, I know you're on there uh, with all of your friends from, from business school. And, um, and then the, as it progressed, you know, the Goliaths, Goliath wasn't, wasn't really knocked out. He had one eye open, right? And then they, he stood up and then he started learning the tricks of David. And then David started learning the tricks of Goliath. And now they're kind of holding hands and going off into the sunset together because they're like, they've learned each other's tricks, right? So it's yeah. kind of interesting that, you know, the term digital native talks about the, the provenance maybe, um, but ultimately everyone's now learning the best of each other's way of doing business, which is kind of a, kind of a cool thing. I totally agree. I, I think, you know, I, I think of our relationship, I'm, I'm mentioning REI because they're one of our biggest partners, but we have such a special relationship with them. And yeah. in some ways that they're a competitor, but they're not. I no. mean, we, we see them as a, as a partner in like helping us build our brand and grow it. And we want to help them achieve their goal. Uh, you know, they have these very strong, they're a very strong and mission driven organization that wants to have, you know, impact in the, in the community and wants to protect the environment. It's like, you know, we can help them do that. And that, which helps us accomplish our mission as well. So uh, I, I, I think I love this analogy of David and Goliath holding hands, walking off into the sunset together. Yeah, well, I'll send it to you afterwards. Um, so because it's very rare for me, um, I shouldn't say it quite like that, because it's a luxury for me to be able to to talk to someone who is able to operate uh, and think on sort of this, this kind of a plane that is, I think, quite um, ethereal when it comes to consumer products, right? It's, it's trying to see the wide view, uh, including the future of where the consumer is going. And you're, you're feeling that consumer, you, you're, you're feeling them being pulled by your, by the meaning that is imbued into your products. Can you give us some consumer insights that you may have that kind of were surprising to you that you're comfortable sharing? Because we lo- we're, we're very big into insights here and we you know do a lot of um, studies and analytics around where the consumer is today, but also where she and he are thinking about what's coming next. Um, h- how do you feel how do you feel the consumer is doing uh, coming off of this pandemic? Um, how do you feel they're doing in general? Um, and where do you feel the consumer um, is directionally over the next few years? Yeah, um, really, really great question. And I'll do my best to answer it. I, I, I could probably pull in a, a person or two on my team that would do a much better job at answering this than I will. But um you know, there's a few things, a few trends that we've that we've seen over this last 18 months. Uh, we've seen average order value decrease pretty significantly, um, and uh, you know, I think this is a trend as as people are more careful about where they're spending their money. Uh, some of it is also just due to the mix of our product. You know, our, our, our best-selling product before the pandemic, our hero product was a travel bag, mm-hmm. kind of an expensive, like really amazing bag, but, you know, people aren't traveling and, uh, you know, we kind of shifted towards, we started making face masks and for every mask that we made, we were donating a mask to a community in need somewhere in the developing world. And mm-hmm. it's been, you know, very rewarding, but like those masks, like average Average order value is a lot smaller, yep. but customer acquisition cost has also in turn reflected that as well. So our customer acquisition cost has, has dropped significantly. 
you know, we've seen uh, definitely in the outdoor industry, we've seen a, a big shift online of people buying outdoor products on, you know, through our e-commerce site. So that's definitely been a shift. You know, it's it's been interesting. Uh, we, we've seen, we've always been skewed female. Mm-hmm. About 60% of our customers are women, which in the outdoor industry is pretty rare. It's yep. typically maybe 50-50 or maybe skews even male. Mm-hmm. You know, with uh, ethnically diverse customers as well, it's most outdoor brands are tend to skew older, white, and, uh, and male. And yep. we've seen quite the opposite, uh, you know, with our brand. And that was the intent. We wanted to build a brand that was more inclusive. Um, and we've seen during the this last 18 months, we've actually seen that accelerate. And so we've seen this actually skew, continue to skew more, more female, more diverse, uh, more people are going to the outdoors that maybe before didn't feel part of it. And I think that's been an interesting trend that we've been watching. And frankly, we love it. I mean, yeah. this is what we want to see. I want to go into the outdoors and see more people that look different, that represent our communities that we live in. What's so interesting to me about what you just said is that, you know, fashion didn't ever really, uh, let's say, feature in in your industry um, because, frankly, at that point in time, um, older white males weren't necessarily into it. And so, but you're with your distinctive look and I wouldn't, I, mean, I guess it is a fashion because it, it, it's got colors and it, the colors change and um, are appealing to those demographics that actually do care more about uh, those things. And it tends to be more diverse and more female populations. I think that's, that's, that's fascinating. And by the way, those customers, you know, frankly um, like to spend more on that too. So that's a, an interesting place to be. And so look, I, I could speak to you for hours. So I'm going to try and be, be sparing with your time. And I got one last question for you. You know, when you look at the pantheon of, of businesses out there, um, it could be, you know, brands, but it could be frankly anything. Uh, what gets you excited and um, maybe moved about where the world is going uh, through consumerism? You touched on something that I, I think is really interesting, which we talk about in some of our studies, is, is this notion that capitalism is becoming more benevolent. And it, and it's a bit like the Gordon Gecko approach, right? So he would say greed is good, but you're saying if it's appealing to someone, if it's good for business, then you should do it. And it turns out that you're proving and many others are proving that it's good for business to appeal to the heartstrings and to the uh, benevolent nature of consumers. Um, then, you know, quite frankly, uh, you're right. The, 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 you know, the approach to doing business, which you know, was every penny should stay within the company, maybe actually can now be turned on its head. What gets you excited about the next decade? And where are you sort of seeing the embers of excitement beyond obviously your your direct company? Yeah, this is a really great question. I, you know, I think what's really interesting about this movement is that I'm actually not, I'm not necessarily inspired by all the businesses that are doing this better than they used to. I'm actually most inspired by young people. Like when I go to a college, or when I talk to young entrepreneurs, Every one of them is thinking about these issues. This was not the case 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Yep. And so that's what gives me the most hope. It's not necessarily the businesses that exist today. It's the businesses that will exist tomorrow. Yep. And uh, I, am, I am so optimistic about the future because I see these young people thinking so differently about why they exist, their purpose, what they want to be doing, where they want to work. And I think that's going to drive and change the market in a massive way. 
Uh, we have to change capitalism. We have to do it better. We're destroying our planet. We're leaving people behind and uh, we can do a better job. And I, my hope is that these young people will look at Cotopaxi and say, you know, I'm inspired by that, but I can do it better. Yeah. I have ideas on how to do it better. And uh, I believe they will. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I'm, 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 I'm privileged to serve on the board um, of um, Parsons, the School of Design in, in New York City. And for 15 years now, every single one of their students in every single discipline across everything from fashion to graphic design to interior design to the architecture areas, every single course is imbued with sustainability and has been for 15 years. And so you get this factory of 5,500 kids in any you know, four-year period. So you know, call it uh, 1,200 or 300 kids every year graduating with this mindset of we have to try and design a better future. And I think you're right that those young people um, are the ones who not only are designing the future, and there are probably many of them in your company, but they're also the consumers, right? So it becomes hopefully a a self-fulfilling prophecy that that also hopefully doesn't just reside at the premium end of the market that can also uh, reside um, further down. I, I guess on that last point, do you think that this can exist, call it in the mid to mass market as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I think we're seeing that some of these companies that are doing things well, like we're looking at, uh, you know, talking again about some of my, my classmates, but, uh, you know, Allbirds, mm-hmm. you know, going public later this year and uh, Warby Parker. I mean, these are very large companies that are scaling quickly still. And so, uh, you know, I think we're starting to see this trend of really responsible wonderful companies that are that are reaching mass scale and this isn't just like a startup movement I've, if you look at like the B, the certified b corps yeah. 99% of them were very small companies in those early days that's not the case anymore and i think we're going to see a bigger and bigger shift towards large companies doing this right well, from your lips to God's ears, I, it's my job now to get you back to your to get to running your company. So, Davis Smith, founder and CEO of Cotopaxi, thank you so much for joining me on the safari. Thanks, Mortimer. Really appreciate it. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.